This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From our Providence, Rhode Island studios, I talk Rhode Island politics with Nico Lamazzo. Nico Lamazzo is an activist, performer, and frequent commentator on all things politics. Having strong ties to Providence's Federal Hill community, Nika regularly offers thoughtful opinions on some of the challenges facing Providence and Rhode Island as a whole. All right, here we are, day five of our week-long daily podcast marathon here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. We made it, and we made it in style. Thanks to you, the listeners out there. We appreciate it. Had a great week. Loved every single episode that came out this week. A blast recording them, editing them, posting them, and um, talking to you out there about them as well. That's that's also the best part. So uh, you can always email me, bill at bartholomewtown.com. Love to get your feedback. And uh, if you haven't already, by the way, make sure you're subscribed to the Bartholomew Town Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you consume content. We're on TuneIn. You can say Amazon Alexa, Bartholomew Town, and it'll deliver you the pod. Make it easy for you. You can also go to BartholomewTown.com or RIPodcast.com. We get everything there as well. All of our in-depth interviews with Rhode Island politicians, media members, artists, and beyond. Well, if you're in the Providence, Rhode Island area and you're hearing this pod on release day, Friday, October 19th, our guest today, Nika Lamaza, will be presenting her one-woman show, Unapologetically Messy, 7 p.m. tonight, AS220, right there, downtown Providence, in the belly of the beast, right there on Empire Street, 7 p.m. So if you're in the Providence area, don't miss it. But before that, let's talk Rhode Island politics in-depth my one-on-one with Nika Lamazzo. We've got Joe Trillo. We find out he assaulted Nick Mattiello in the 70s. Um, we've got, uh, well, we had the, the bust last week, quote-unquote, of the Compassion Party candidates. We had the rally this past week, which was, you know, I don't even have any words left for that event. You know, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's just... It's everything's a mess right now. The I mean, there's been like humor, I think, and what's been going on with Trillo and the Compassion candidate. Um, that's been easy to laugh at. The rally was, I mean, that's always dark and depressing. Um, I didn't go to that. I didn't go to the last one either. Um, but I was watching everyone there, um, and that's rough. It's rough to see that happening right now, especially in Rhode Island and in Providence. I feel like we live in such a bubble in this city. Um, but with Trillo, I think it's hilarious that of all people, the person he hit was Mattiello. Um, I think that's a big metaphor. That's something to be unpacked. Yeah. And what does it say about Nick Mattiello that he was pounding on the door of a helpless, you know, adolescent girl? Yeah. I mean, that, um, that pretty much sums Mattiello up, to be honest, harassing a harmless girl. So there's a division there between like the humorous aspects of this and the actual dark, serious aspects of it. And you're right. Providence, especially, um, I've seen your commentary. I think mine would be exactly the same, that there's a bubble that kind of exists around College Hill, the east side. And then all of a sudden, when you see something as severe as what happened at the State House with this resist Marxism, Marxism rally, um, it really is a shock to the core, I think, for a lot of people. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, and it's... 
It's sad to to see the the state police their reaction at the rally. I was watching a lot of the coverage, um, and to see them defending. Or, I mean, it seemed as though they were defending and or protecting the protesters and then mass arresting the counter protesters. This is what I was reading. I don't know if that was true. Um, you could confirm on that one. Um, and that was really disheartening to see. But at the end of the day, the state police are like not our friends. Um, and the police are rarely our friends and especially rarely the friends of marginalized people. So I guess that's why we have to be out there marching. Um, I definitely would have gone. I got doxxed by Nazis a few months ago, so I don't go to any of these rallies now by Stormfront. Um, so it's quite interesting to see them like out, out and about because when I was um, confronted by them, it was all online. This was like way before any of these rallies were happening. Right. Yeah, I, I I agree. There, I don't know if there were any arrests, but the intimidation level was incredible. I actually myself, I got pretty nervous, you know, thinking that they, the state police, were about to storm, you know, sort of occupy Wall Street style, just go in and grab anybody once the order to disperse was given. And yeah, it was a, a weird sight. It was almost like a a bizarro moment um, when when the rally began and these these um, maniacs took the. St- took to the steps of the state house and began giving their speech to see them surrounded and protected by the Rhode Island state police with dogs and snipers. Um, when in theory you would, you would think, you know, in a, in a utopian world, you know, you assign that task to the other side that they would be facing towards these maniacs on the stage. So it was a bizarre and unsettling sight. I agree. You know, and you know, that's, that's a specific incident, but Within the context of Providence, policing, particularly for those people who are marginalized within this community, which is a massive portion of the Providence community, you know, it's been, um, some have said it's improved. There was a report that was released last night, Dan McGowan cited, that crime is down in Providence. Um, but I'm not sure that that's true, and I wonder if just it's just reported crime is down, and I wonder if that relationship between the public and the police has been repaired. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I can't, I I don't know. I can't fully speak to whether or not the relationship has been repaired. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't here when the community safety act was being written and when it was being passed. Um, so I missed out on a lot of the organizing work for that one. Um, but I, I do know organizers who worked on that. Um, and uh, my mentor, Sid McKenna, when she was chief of staff of the city council, helped to get that passed and was very passionate about that. And I know that that was supposed to be a way to repair the relationship between the marginalized communities in Providence and the Providence Police Department. Um, but to my knowledge and from what I've heard from my friends and organizers, predominantly people of color, um, is that while it's empowered them, it hasn't really changed the behavior all that much of the police. Um, the police unions were holding out for a really long time on the CSA, and uh, the police unions were intimidating people and sitting in intimidation in the city council offices um, and in the city council chambers, I remember, um, when they were trying to get like the most radical part of the CSA passed, um, which it's escaping me what it was called, para the Para Act or something. It was basically like the most radical part of, of the bill that basically allowed the community to like police the police. Um, and that bit got dropped out. So it kind of got watered down the community safety act from what I've been told by organizers. Um, so it doesn't seem like things have been changed all that much. 
Um, and as a white woman myself, I've always seen the different relationship that the police have with people like me versus people of color um, in Providence. And so it's not different from any other city or state, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. 100% true. Um, being out here in Elmwood, and I use that term out here from the perspective of outside of the bubble that exists. You know what I mean? It's been, um, it has been living here, working here has given me a, a specific perspective on the what I would say are two different cities. Providence is really split by the highway in mm-hmm. 95 um, where everything west of and south of downtown not even necessarily downtown but really the east side and and uh, and College Hill exists in a totally different environment and policing and the attitudes about policing are front and center in that as are environmental hazards with you know the LNG plant yeah. right down the street, um, and just generally kind of being overlooked by some of the public services. When it snows here, you know it doesn't get plowed necessarily. Um, what what does it take to repair Providence on those fundamental levels? What's going on here? It's tough. I mean, often we see, and we've seen in Providence, that these things get fixed once a neighborhood is gentrified. So we've seen that the West End and Federal Hill, well, not really Federal Hill, but the West yeah. End predominantly over the last. 10 to 20 years and really like right now in the last five years city services have come over the west end parks have been cleaned up the snow gets plowed um, much more quickly Uh, the police presence is a lot higher because white people have moved in and have asked for a higher police presence which has made people of color from the neighborhood uncomfortable Um, we're seeing uh, urban greens co-op being built now Um, and so we're seeing a lot of these things coming in and again that's often a product of gentrification Um, naturally we don't want to see that happening in the rest of the city because it pushes people out Um, and so I think that it just takes I think it takes on one level engaging in electoral politics I think it uh, takes electing people who are going to fight for you who are going to fight for the community but then you also need to be out there organizing Um, you need to be insisting uh, that the city is providing your neighborhood with these city services. Now, that often can't be done by the most marginalized people in the community because as much as they want city services and the streets plowed and the streets clean and the streets safe, they have to go to work um, and they have to go pick their kids up from school and they have to take care of their families. So they don't get to advocate for themselves, which is why you need advocates in the community and hopefully from the community. I think that when people move into a neighborhood and begin to advocate for it, and I've been in this position myself, um, you take on a bit of a savior complex, and you end up speaking over the community. Um, I saw that with myself when I ran for state rep. Um, My family is from Federal Hill. They had lived on Federal Hill for about 100 years. I always loved the community. And when I jumped in and was running against Representative Lombardi, um, I ended up having a moment where I realized that I was like not listening to my own personal politics of gentrification and that, you know, I looked around and I thought to myself, oh, you know, no people of color in the community have asked me to run. Uh, None of the marginalized folks in the community have asked me to run. My campaign is kind of built on an echo chamber of a lot of like young white hipsters who want some like young white person to run for office. Um, So I ended up stepping down because I see someone like representative Lombardi as someone from the community who's been there forever, who, when, you know, anything goes wrong in the community, he's the first one that people call. He's the first one that people of color in the community call that people in Onlyville call. Um, And so that has to be, um, 
that has to be taken into account. Uh, we're seeing all across the city um, a lot of white people who are well-intentioned moving into neighborhoods to advocate for them, but I'm finding that they're really only advocating for their small enclave of other white folks. Yeah, I have... Across the airways here, I have a big smile on my face for sure. I love how honest you are. Like, wow, that's exactly, you're so right. I mean, what, you know, I'm at a loss of words, really, to you you sum it up exactly right, you know. And with all due respect to a Sam Bell or someone like that um, that's out there, you know, trying to be a mover and a shaker, um, that's completely different than actually going in and planting the seeds for a community to spawn its own voice, which ultimately will grow into a powerful voice, you know, mm-hmm. if, over time. So, yeah, it's a very honest take on that. I wonder how much of this progressive wave within the General Assembly is fueled by kind of, you know, that version of identity politics and convenience. Um, I think a lot of it. I don't know if it's statewide because you have a lot of progressive people statewide like Justine Caldwell, Bridget yeah. Valverde, people like that who are just concerned mothers who are of their community and from their community who are running but identify as progressive Democrats. Those people I see as being people who will fight for their communities. But then we have the Sam Bells and we have the Rachel Millers on the city council and we have, you know, these white folks who... Um, Sam Bell specifically, someone who moved into the neighborhood a year ago after running on the east side against Aaron Regenberg, dropping out and then moving to like the last part of the Senate district um, and running to be, as you you know, a a mover and shaker. Um, And I think that that limits the progression of the community, which is ironic when you're calling yourself a progressive. Um, And I don't think that there's a difference between... um, you know, trying to be intentional and how you're actually executing that intentionality. And I don't see anything being executed particularly well across the board in the city with this progressive wave. Um, I see someone like Kat Kerwin who has stepped up and she's done a really good job. She's listened to her community. Um, and she has tried to work with former Councilman Hassett, or he's still a councilman, but soon to be former Councilman yeah. Hassett. Um, you know, she's out there speaking to people of color in the community, um, and she is really well-intentioned in making sure that she is, like, a very ethical advocate. Um, but I think that the progressive movement, again, is like a, cult- a cultural, rather, echo chamber. Um, it's a lot of white people, like, gassing each other up essentially. Um, and I've been involved in it. I've seen it happen. And it's why I kind of exited the fray of all of that. Um, and it's frustrating because I think that it's impeding the growth of the city. And I think it's impeding the growth of the state, especially when it's not homegrown people. Um, when it's, you know, I think that it's, to me, I find it like really frustrating that someone like Sam Bell would be considered kind of the the like mascot of the progressive movement because he kind of represents so much of the elitism in the city, a former Brown university student now professor at Brown um, coming into a neighbor or into a Senate district that has such a, a diverse um, kind of income bracket, very low income on one side, uh, very comfortable on the other, very white on one side with a lot of people of color on the other. um, And, I watched that campaign unfold, and it felt like, again, it was another 
white person speaking over and for a community that they don't fully understand. Um, and again, it's why I dropped out. I was only living on Federal Hill for a year. So I don't like hold anyone to a standard I wouldn't hold myself to. But I don't understand how you can run in a community that you've lived in for a year. Um, because I don't, you can't fully understand all the nuances of that community and what everyone needs. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting discussion. Like, who's best equipped to be an advocate? And then how do you best execute? You know, I think everyone has, if you're remotely liberal, let's say, if, you know, for example, Lieutenant Governor McKee, you know, he sat in this chair and, you know, in his words anyway, yeah, you know, a lot of the ideals, um, the, the goals of the most, you know, the spokespeople for the progressive movement, let's say, are exactly what he wants to achieve. The only problem is that we have people like Nick Mattiello in power and, it's, and, and you have to navigate different portions of the community. So it's important to re- at least retain some level of mainstream political grounding just so you can get something done. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's this struggle that we're seeing right now in the state. It's like no one's really right. Um, you know, but how can you just make change happen overnight, especially if you're not actually from the communities yeah. that need this change? Yeah. Um, I'm, I agree wholeheartedly with, uh, Lieutenant Governor McKee on that front. Um, I ended up voting for, I ended up voting for McKee, rather, um, and I was, you know, this kind of, like, relates to that whole campaign as well. Um, I was, like, really on the front lines for Aaron Regenberg and really wanted to vote for him. And then, again, and we saw this when Regenberg lost, he underperformed severely with with a lot of communities of color. Latinos across the state carried the election, according to the Providence Journal, for... um, for Governor or Lieutenant Governor McKee, um, and I had a lot of conversations with people of color, predominantly my Latino friends, and asked them, you know, what do you think? Who do you think is the better candidate? And they all said McKee because he's here. He comes to community events when it's not an election year. He's out here all the time. Um, he listens to us. He may not be perfect, but he listens to us. And then we had someone like former Rep. Regenberg, who, again, I feel has done a lot of good and is well-intentioned, but again, was speaking over these people and was coming in on this like kind of white savior horse to speak for them um, and didn't want to be called out for it. Um, and I've lobbied at the state house and I understand like I, I'm the first one to scream about Mattiello. I can't stand the speaker. I think that he is a horrible legislator. I think that he abuses his position of power. I think he needs to be gone and I think he needs to go away forever. But right now he is the speaker. And so you can't go in to the state house guns a blazing with no decorum or respect for the speaker if you want to get anything passed. Um, and right now it's become kind of cool and hip for the progressive movement and people who are running to shout about Mattiello all the time. And right now that's fine because it's looking like he's not going to be the speaker anymore. But like a few months ago, no one had any idea if that was going to happen. And to me, I was watching that and saw that as a little bit foolish um, and very privileged for these white people who are running because I don't feel that they were thinking about the community that they're running in that it's going to affect, that if you're disrespecting uh, the House Speaker and you're not willing to meet with him halfway at all, you're not going to get a bill passed. He's a vindictive guy. We all know that. Um, And that's been my gripe with the progressive movement in Rhode Island, um, is that they want change overnight. And 
I used to be like that when I was like 19 <laughs> and then I grew up and I start, you know, I understood, I understood and I understand now how the game works and it's unfortunate that it has to be a game. Um, but you need to know, in my opinion, you need to understand the rules better than your opponent before you can change the rules. And yeah. I don't see that happening. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Um, yeah. And going back to McKee, you know, there's a guy who, pardon me, there's a guy who's like, you know, he's a basketball coach you know board of directors of the boys and girls club and i would agree just from my own experience of spending time with each of those two um a lot of time interviewing them and whatever following them around um yeah there's definitely a much more organic connection to a lot more communities from the mckee camp um than there is from the reaganberg camp which he did a great job fundraising on the east side and Mm -hmm. he built that infrastructure for himself but um yeah the results proved it to be one-dimensional you're Mm -hmm. right let's shift um uh, in the, these last hours, the Rhode Island chapter of the NEA has endorsed Governor Amundo. Um, this is a big issue because of her uh, pension shenanigans, as they have um, protested for a while now. Um, but this switch may be sort of similar, where you got to pick your best ally. Mm-hmm. So here we are. The governor now has a 14-point lead at, with the latest poll results. Joe Trillo has slipped to 5%. Um, the only one who gained anything other than the governor is Dr. Munoz, who gained half a percentage point. Um, where are we at in the governor's race? Is it over? I'm hoping it's over. Um, <laughs> I've been nervous for a while because it was, I think, last month it was like they were leading neck and neck, uh, Mayor Fung and Governor Raimondo. Um I think it's probably over at this point. I mean, she has a 14-point lead. I don't see that going anywhere in a month, but anything could happen in a month. Um, but yeah. I'm praying it's over. Um, There's been way too many improvements, um, in my opinion, on a state level with gun safety, with immigration, et cetera, et cetera, for Governor Raimondo to no longer be the governor. Um, And not that I think the governor is by any means a devil, but the phrase, better the devil you know, speaks very loudly, I think, in this election for a lot of people who don't particularly like the governor. Um, and I think we're seeing that with things like what just happened with this endorsement, um, is that, you know, it's better to have someone that you've been able to work with for four years rather than have someone as unhinged as Alan Fung become our governor. Yeah. And I can't foresee how Alan Fung will be able to pull it off with Joe Trill in the race or without Joe Trill in the race based <laughs> on those latest numbers. You know, it does seem, yeah, the sample size, you could take it into question. There were a lot of Democrats polled. And a lot of 11% undecided, that's pretty significant. But it's hard to imagine, you know, without a big shift of some sort at this point, that there could be much of a of a push from the phone camp. At this, you know. But we'll see. You never yeah. know. Um, last area is that's on my mind right now is for you in Providence navigating the city. Do you really do you feel that this is a, a, a place that's on the move that's growing that we're heading in the right direction as from a cultural perspective with in terms of art and music there's there's some you know in terms of venues in terms of politics the relationship with students and well college students and the community and universities and the community and hospitals is everything tied together or what do you think is it all disoriented um i don't know i i think the city is kind of always a mess but i think that's like kind of the charm of Providence is that it's always a mess. Um, I 
we're, I feel like every time we move forward, we take one or two steps back. Um, so we're moving forward by all, you know, a big influx of young people moving here from Brooklyn and from bigger cities that, you know, they're starting to realize the charm and the, the coolness of Providence. Um, but when that happens, you know, then we take one step back by a neighborhood being rapidly gentrified, or we take another step back by giving tax cuts to luxury towers and uh, luxury buildings, rather, that are going to benefit Brown and RISD students. Um, and, you know, the universities are constantly growing, but again, they're decimating neighborhoods. So, you know, we're, I saw it when I knocked doors for Kat Kerwin. Um, she has like a slither of the Elmhurst neighborhood where I grew up, and it's been destroyed by PC um, because there's such a housing crisis that the neighborhood is no longer a neighborhood. It's like a giant college campus um that happened on fox point in fox point rather you know decades ago um you know artistically speaking the city is moving forward um i think there's always room to grow i'm really involved in the art scene and i find the city to be pretty artistically segregated pretty socially segregated um i yeah and that um it's it's I just started noticing that this summer, um, how much the city is kind of split. Um, so I would love to see that change. I would love to see white people being more intentional about who they're booking, um, white people being more intentional about who they're including in their shows. It's something I try to do. Um, so I think that we're, you know, we're moving in all kinds of different places and it's, we're getting more cohesive, but it's difficult. I think that, um, there's so much going on nationally and statewide that it's kind of hard to get everything fixed in Providence right now. But I have faith. I mean, it's why I came back here um, and it's why it's home. Um, I think that we're doing pretty well. Um, but I'm hoping that people don't stop fighting and stop uh, engaging with the community and stop organizing. I've seen a lot of people, particularly my age, getting more involved in the last few years locally. Um, and I hope that doesn't go away after the midterms. I hope that people stay involved in the fight because um, that's when it's most important, when an election isn't going on. Um, and for me, at least, everything comes down to electoral politics and making sure that I'm holding politicians' feet to the fire because that's really where the most change comes in my opinion in the city mm -hmm. um so yeah i think we're kind of moving all over the place and there's been progress and there's been regression um but i have faith yeah the usual ebb and flow but moving in the right direction right now yeah. i feel it too um brazil i should i should ask you about this mm -hmm. um potentially dark times right now in brazil uh you live there or traveled through there i did um so I, I took a gap year after high school um and spent two months in rio de janeiro and then loved it so much that when i was a sophomore in college i studied abroad there for six months also in rio mm -hmm. oh awesome yeah yeah right now uh, kind of the layman's way of looking at it is there's essentially a Trump figure who's about to realistically is, looks like it's going to take power in Brazil. So much like with Brexit or some of the uh, populism in Italy, it's now expanded to South America, which is, um, you know, a vulnerable place for sure, you know, and a vulnerable uh, area of the world geopolitically to have this sort of populist um, revolution, if you will, and, and a negative one at that, you know. Mm -hmm. 
So let's hope it doesn't turn into Trump too. Yeah, I mean, it, it more than likely will. Um, but Bra- Brazilians are like some of the most resilient people I've ever met. They've been through so much. They've been through a dictatorship, which hilariously they say was when like human rights were the best mm-hmm. um, was when they were in a dictatorship uh, and you know they had basically their own kind of like Clinton administration with uh, President Lula and then um, God who followed after uh, Jilma Rousseff and she was impeached and then they had this very conservative man I, I can't remember any of the names it's been a while but um, they're the country's a mess. Um, I mean, abortion is still illegal. Yep. Um, gay marriage isn't even a thing. The yep. economy is a mess. Racism is alive and well and not spoken about at all by white Brazilians. Um, but they still manage to chuck along and they still manage to fight for their communities um, on a very local level, which is kind of what inspired me to get involved locally. So we'll see. I think that we're going to be seeing... Trump's being elected all across the country. Um, it started with Brexit. Um, maybe it started even before that, but populism has surged, unfortunately. Um, and I don't, I don't know what we can do about it right now other than continue fighting. Like, no one can get tired. <laughs> That's my opinion. Right. Try to be a mirror of sorts, you know, mm-hmm. to shine back the absurdity of a lot of the elements of what's making this all tick, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, Brazil is your, exactly my wife's Brazilian, and uh-huh. I've also traveled extensively there. And it's you're right; it's a, it's a very specific people. My father-in-law said in make sure I get this right, so I don't sound like George W. Bush in uh, in Brazil. Things are bad, but they're good. In the U.S., things are good, but they're bad. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For sure. You have a one-woman show coming up? Did I see that? I do. Um, October 19th, 7 p.m. It's at AS220, the main stage, called Unapologetic Messiness. Um, It's a a comedy show, um, and it's a follow-up to my last show in January at AS220 that was called Imposter Syndrome. I did that while I was still running. Um, And this is a little bit of everything. Politics, running for office, uh, all the things I witnessed in politics, being trans, being a woman in my 20s, uh, doing all of that in Providence. So, yeah, Unapologetic Messiness, October 19th, 7 p.m. It's basically my brand, um, is being unapologetically messy. So, yeah, definitely come through to that. As always, thank you for listening to the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.